Did you hear about the Zion Christian Church prophet from Zambia who was attacked by a pride of lions last Saturday and nearly lost his life in Kruger National Park in South Africa? Uh, He decided that he was going to charge the lions in order to prove the power of the Holy Spirit in himself. And the lions turned the tables and charged him. And it was the quick thinking of some park rangers that fired guns into the air that spared his life. Here's the way a Zambian newspaper reported the event. It says, A Zion Christian church prophet who was filled with the Holy Spirit recently challenged a lion to do battle in Kruger National Park. The prophet initially charged toward the lions, but they called his bluff and charged back. Prophet Alec Indiwane was with fellow church members in the Kruger National Park where they were watching animals. It's believed the prophet went into a trance and started to speak in tongues. Ahead of them was a lion pride busy eating their impala. Alec must have thought he was the biblical Samson as the prophet opened the car door and went charging toward the lions. Upon seeing the man running toward them, the lions could not believe that manna was coming straight from heaven. and instead ran toward the prophet. Alec must have then come to his senses as he quickly realized this was not going to end well and made an immediate turn and ran back to safety. But before he could safely reach the confines of the car, one lion had snapped its paws on him, thus causing major damage to his backside. Also, thanks to the game ranger who was near, who fired some shots with guns to scare the lion away. I do not know what came over me, Alec confessed. I thought the Lord wanted me to to use me to show his power over animals. Is it not that we are given dominion over all creatures of the earth? Alex said. Well, you don't have to be a graduate student in theology to recognize that Alec is a false prophet who is really just a spiritual nutcase. That you should not submit yourself to. That you should not follow. That you should not seek to look to to get spiritual guidance and understanding. He is one who himself is spiritually unbalanced. He's what the Bible calls a false teacher. However, not all false teachers are so easily detected. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul describes false teachers with these words, beginning in verse 13, he says, They are deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We have already seen in our study of 2 Corinthians thus far in the first three chapters how it is these very false apostles that have made charges against the Apostle Paul himself. They are false teachers, and yet they've raised questions about Paul being an an authentic minister and apostle of Jesus Christ. These false teachers infiltrated the church of Corinth that Paul himself had planted and began to criticize Paul and question the integrity of his ministry, suggesting that neither he nor his ministry was really blessed by God because of all the difficulties that he had experienced, and because of the way that he had changed his plans, plans that he had previously made known to the Corinthian church. 
So Paul writes 2 Corinthians, this letter to the church, to respond to these charges and to expose his critics as themselves being false ministers. As we have seen already in the first three chapters, Paul defends his ministry as being faithful to the Lord. In the third chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul does so by describing the ministry that he now has in terms of the new covenant that God has made with His people through His Son, Jesus Christ. And he contrasts this new covenant with the old covenant that existed under the Old Testament era of which Moses was the mediator. And that old covenant had lots of glory associated with it. There were blessings that came to God's people through that old covenant. There were benefits that came to them through that old covenant. There were privileges that were theirs through the old covenant. But what Paul says is that in the new covenant that was secured by Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, there were exceedingly greater blessings, privileges, and access to God's provisions than were provided under the old covenant. So he says ministry in the new covenant is much greater has a greater glory than ministry in the Old Covenant. So these guys who had come to to the Corinthians were still clinging to Old Testament ways of thinking and living. And they were trying to suggest that because Paul was not living and thinking the way they were, ministering the way they were, that his ministry lacked power, lacked credibility. In the first six verses of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul wraps up this part of his refutation of his critics by giving several characteristics of a faithful gospel ministry. These are characteristics that we need to consider carefully in our own day. Because false prophets didn't end. False teachers didn't come to a close at the closing of the New Testament Scriptures. We don't want to be led astray by false teachers. And we need to realize that, after all, not... Every false prophet exposes himself as such by foolishly charging a pride of lions. So follow along with me as we read for our text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's found on page 965 in the Bible that's provided for you in the chair in front of you this morning. So I encourage you to take a copy of God's Word, open up, follow along as I read aloud these six verses. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A faithful gospel minister tenaciously continues to preach Christ with full submission to the Word of God. He doesn't quit when he's tempted to quit, 
And he doesn't lose sight of the authority of God's word, nor of the substance of the message of that word, which is Jesus Christ. Paul underscores his point in these verses by outlining four characteristics of a faithful gospel ministry. Today, what I want us to do is to look at the first two of them, then God willing, next Sunday, come back and look at the second two of them. But first of all, in verse 1, we see that a faithful gospel minister perseveres by God's mercy. A faithful gospel ministry will persevere by God's mercy, as will a faithful gospel minister. Look at verse 1. Paul says, therefore, or in light of this, or because of this, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. The, the ministry is hard work. I remember when I was called to be a pastor, uh, my brother-in-law, who's a fun-loving guy and loves to tease, got his calculator out. He says, you're going to be a pastor. Huh? How much are they going to pay you? And he got the salary, and he says, well, okay, so you work one, one hour on Sunday morning, one hour Sunday night, maybe 45 minutes Wednesday night. Man, that's a pretty good salary you're making. You know, just saying you work three times a week, right? And he was being funny with me. But the ministry, gospel ministry, really is hard work, and it is filled with temptations. It's filled with temptations, not the least of which is the temptation to be overwhelmed to the point of discouragement. Listen to the way that Charles Spurgeon describes this. Spurgeon was a wonderful 19th century Baptist pastor who started a pastor's college that sent hundreds of ministers throughout the world over the course of his lifetime. And he would lecture each week to those aspiring pastors, to those ministerial students. And one of his lectures was entitled, The Minister's fainting fits and he said this our work when earnestly undertaken lays open lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking to the dust passionate longings after men's conversion if not fully satisfied and when are they consume the soul with anxiety and disappointment to see the hopeful turn aside waxing more bold in sin are not these sights enough to crush us to the earth the kingdom comes not as we would the reverend name is not hallowed as we desire and for this we must weep how can we be otherwise than sorrowful while men believe not our report and the divine arm is not revealed all mental work tends to weary and to depress for much study is a weariness of the flesh but ours is more than mental work it is heart work the labor of our inmost soul such soul travail as that of a faithful minister will bring, on occasional, will bring on occasional seasons of exhaustion when the heart and flesh will fail. Spurgeon is simply explaining something that the Apostle Paul knew and was experiencing and had experienced. The temptation to be overwhelmed to the point that you just want to quit. And so he says, we do not lose heart he's using that editorial we speaking of himself and those who serve the gospel of jesus christ with him in other words he says we do not defect we do not walk away that's what that word lose heart means paul puts it this way because of the temptations that ministers of the gospel face he could have just said i persevere in gospel ministry but he says, we do not lose heart because losing heart always looms on the horizon. It is sometimes a reality that would almost overshadow all other realities in the mind of a gospel minister. 
But Paul says, we do not defect, we do not give up, we do not lose heart because of two realities. Two spiritual realities that undergird his perseverance in gospel ministry. The first is the fact that his ministry is a new covenant ministry. He, he says, therefore, or because of this, referring back to everything that he's just said about the greater glory of new covenant ministry over old covenant ministry. The fact that it is ministry in the power of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. It is ministry now that transforms lives through a crucified, risen, reigning, coming Savior. And because he is aware of the content of that ministry, of the truth and power of that ministry, he says, we do not lose heart. But then he adds that it's by the mercy of God. That's the second spiritual reality. Paul remembers how he got where he is. He remembers that he is living and breathing and ministering by the mercy of God. Mercy. Mercy. What is that? It's not getting what you deserve. Getting better than you deserve. Paul was conscious and reminded himself of the fact that he was spared God's judgment and wrath against his sin. And he didn't let himself go long without remembering that he deserved God's wrath and judgment against his sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's writing to his young colleague Timothy who's at Ephesus, and this is toward the end of his life, the last year or two of his life. He says this in verse 12 and 13. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul never forgot the fact that he was a child of mercy, being mercied by God, always was percolating in his thinking. He was bringing it back to his conscious awareness. His conversion to Jesus Christ as Lord was an act of mercy. We read about it in Acts chapter 9 where it's described for us by Luke who took notes and wrote them down and they became the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, this is how Luke tells the story. But Saul, this was Paul's name before he was converted, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the way of Christ, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. He didn't wake up that morning and say, so, you know, I'm going to go to Damascus, and on the way... I'm going to meet this crucified, risen Jesus Christ and I'm going to entrust my life to Him 
and be forgiven. No, Jesus found Paul. Jesus came to Paul. Paul was on his way to murder people like you and me. Paul wanted to have them arrested and thrown in prison. He had authority. He had papers in his hand that gave him the right to do so. And when he was going this way, away from God, God came to him and arrested him and turned his life around and made him a brand new person. God showed him mercy. Mercy. Paul's whole world was turned upside down. He had been a very religious person. He was a rising star in the Judaism of his day. A Pharisee among the Pharisees, he described himself. And yet, despite all of his religion, when Jesus revealed himself to him in that moment, when he saw a man that had been crucified and buried in his death and burial documented by Roman authority, standing in front of him, he knew that everything these disciples he'd been arresting, putting in prison, seeing them executed, everything they'd been saying about Jesus was true. At that moment, he realized he was a sinner. That he was a rebel against God. And that he needed to be forgiven and reconciled to the very God that he had thought erroneously for so many years that he had been serving. He needed mercy. And God showed him mercy. That's what happened to him. Jesus didn't let him go. He came to him and he changed his mind. He changed his life. Not because of anything Paul had done, but in spite of everything that Paul had done. And that's the way conversion always works. God doesn't save people from sin because of what we've done. He saves us in spite of of what we've done he gave his son jesus to come into the world to take sin upon himself so that by being the sin bearer in behalf of everyone who trusts in jesus our sins might be fully and completely paid for our sins might be carried away from us forever god's wrath against our sin might be completely satisfied and when you come to know god through faith in jesus christ the only ground you stand on is mercy. Nobody will ever walk into heaven saying, I did it my way. I've accomplished this. We'll go in singing mercy, mercy, grace. It's incredible that God would love the likes of me. That God would give up His Son for me. That God would save me. That's what happened to Paul. He never got over it. Because he didn't get over it, he was able to persevere in his ministry. Brothers and sisters, we need to regularly remind ourselves that the salvation we have has been given to us, not as payment, but as a free gift. Do you think very often about mercy? God's mercy to you. If you're a Christian, do you ever stop and pause upon the reality that you should be in hell? If left to yourself, that's all you have in front of you. Everlasting punishment for sin because that's what our sin deserves. We need to pause and reflect upon that and contemplate God's mercy. If you have never come to see yourself 
in desperate need of mercy from God, then friend, I want to plead with you today to think rightly about yourself before a holy God. To see yourself the way Paul came to see himself, despite his religion, despite his activities, beside all the good things that he thought he had done, to be confronted with the reality that he was a rebel against God and he needed mercy from that God. Have you ever seen yourself that way? If not, then, then you're being blinded to realities that are true. But if you remain blinded to them, will lead you to an eternity of paying for your sin under the wrath and judgment of God. But God has brought you here today to hear this, to hear Paul talk about mercy in the Bible. So that the very mercy that was extended to him, you might receive as well as you look to Jesus Christ the way Paul did and call Him Lord. Have you ever come to call Christ Lord? To bow to Him as Lord? If not, today's the day. Today, He brought you here to consider this portion of His Word so that you might hear Him call you to believe the Lord Jesus Christ, trust Him, and experience in Him mercy and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation with your God. It's my prayer for you. My desire for you. And If you have questions about this, you want to talk more about this, I'll be available after the service. Others will be available. And we would love to just sit down and explore this more with you and help you to think more biblically about your life before God. The God against whom you've sinned, but the God who the Bible says delights in showing mercy. Well, Paul was converted by an act of mercy, and he remembered that. But it wasn't just his call to be a Christian that was an act of mercy. His calling to be an apostle was out of God's mercy as well. Acts chapter 9 goes on to tell the rest of that story as well. Beginning in verse 10 of Acts 9, Luke records it this way. He says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen, and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, imagine if you were Ananias. You know, Saul has a reputation for arresting people like you, putting them in prison, seeing them executed. And God says, I want you to go to this guy, this terrorist, because I have plans for him. So Ananias normally, naturally says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he, here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on his name, on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Here, God is telling Ananias, I've chosen Paul to be an apostle of good news of Jesus Christ. He saved Paul by mercy, and he's putting Paul in gospel ministry by Mercy. Paul did nothing to deserve to be entrusted with the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was by the mercy of God that he was made a preacher and teacher of the word. 
And that is true of every faithful gospel minister. And brothers and sisters, that is true of every Christian ministry that we might engage in, whether big or small, known or unknown. Whatever ministry we engage in as Christians is not ours by some type of inherent right. It is ours by the mercy of God. Some of the most divisive and destructive attitudes that can ever disrupt a church grows out of a mindset that forgets this very basic fact. This fact that motivated Paul's perseverance in ministry. The fact that in reality, any ministry with which we are entrusted is by the sheer mercy of God. If God entrusts to you a ministry of the gospel, maybe being a children's worker, maybe being a Bible teacher, perhaps a a deacon or an elder or a greeter or someone who leads out in fellowship or someone who is involved in discipleship, maybe a, a youth worker or any other of any number of ministries, if God has entrusted that to you, Receive it and remember that it is yours by mercy. We minister in His name as His servant by His mercy. Remembering that is absolutely essential for our own spiritual welfare and for our endurance in the work as we seek to live and minister with the right attitude and mindset. One way that I can guarantee that you will become discouraged in your Christian life is to forget the mercy of God. Lose sight of it. Quit thinking about it for a while. Brothers and sisters, when we forget that we deserve hell, we start letting an entitlement mentality creep into our thinking. And we tend to become resentful of things that we lack or difficulties that we must endure. That's certainly true of pastors. One of the best disciplines that a pastor can ever incorporate is to regularly remind himself that he is a Christian by mercy and he's been called to pastor a church by the mercy of God. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. But God has by mercy entrusted him with it. Paul said this is what helped keep him in the ministry, kept him from losing heart. Remembering God's mercy is important for pastors, but not only for pastors. Remembering God's mercy is important for every child of God. When we forget it, we begin to lose patience with people. We start treating people without mercy. In Luke 6.36, Jesus says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. If we forget God's mercy to us, then we will not extend mercy to others. But instead, we will feel completely justified to give up on them when they hurt us, when they disappoint us, when they don't live up to our expectations. Well, Paul shows us that a faithful gospel minister will not do that. He perseveres by the mercy of God. But a second characteristic of faithful gospel ministry or a faithful gospel minister is that he resolves to minister with integrity. With integrity. Look at verse 2. 
but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul makes his point by stating negatively what he will not do, and then by way of contrast, stating positively what he will do. His basic point is found in that first sentence that he has renounced deceitful practices in ministry. That is, he will not carry out his gospel efforts in ways that if his motives and intentions were held open to people and to God would be disgraceful. We've renounced disgraceful, he says. Disgraceful works, disgraceful ways. That is, dishonest ways. We've renounced underhanded ways. That is, hidden, deceptive ways. And having made that fundamental statement, he then gives us three examples of what he's talking about. Two are negative, one is positive. He says that he refuses to practice trickery. You see that word cunning? It means craftiness. It means sleight of hand. It's the same word that Paul used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, where he's describing the purpose of gospel ministry in a church. Why God has given ministers to a church to teach them and shepherd them and help them. He says in Ephesians 4, 14 that he's done this to build up Christians so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, there's that word, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul says, I refuse to do that as a minister of the gospel. And then he adds to it that he refuses to tamper with God's word. That means to twist or distort the true meaning of Scripture. You know, we are very concerned that people not tamper with our food that we purchase or our medical supplies that we purchase, medicines we purchase. And so they come to us in tamper-proof packages, right? I mean, you've seen it. Do not use if seal is broken. It's been tampered with, so you shouldn't buy it because it could be harmed, it could be distorted, it could be perverted, it could be injurious to you. Well, unfortunately, the Bible is not tamper-proof. People can take it and tamper with it. They can distort it in ways to suggest it is saying what it indeed does not say. Paul says he refuses to do that to the Word. In other words, he refuses to use the Word of God as a tool in order to manipulate people. He will not soft-pedal it. He will not distort it. He will honor the written Word of God as the very words of God when he teaches it. Now this is precisely what he tells Timothy to do. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when Timothy's serving as a pastor in Ephesus, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly cutting the word of truth straight. Setting before the people what it actually says. Not twisting it, not covering it up, not distorting it, but laying it forth with simplicity 
and honesty. Do you realize how tempting it is to tamper with the Word of God? I mean, if, if you can convince people who respect the Word of God that it really does say something that you want them to believe or do, then you're well on your way to manipulating them for ends and purposes that you yourself has de have designed. It's a great temptation. And I've seen it happen more times than I care to remember. One of the most egregious times where I witnessed this firsthand was when I, when I inadvertently, I don't, still don't know exactly how I got there, but I wound up at a pastor's meeting locally. And it was gathered there to encourage pastors. And the guy leading said, I want to say something first. And so he takes a copy of God's Word and he turns to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And he reads from the King James Version, which was the only version he thought was the Word of God. And he says, for we wrestle... From that verse, it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But when he read it, he stopped after four words. He stood up, wants to lead us in a devotion. He says, God's word says, but we wrestle not. He closed his Bible. He says, that's the problem with you pastors today. Is you're just not willing to fight for anything. You don't wrestle anymore. And then he began to describe his circle of pastoral friends and influencers in Lee County as the fighting fundamentalists. He said, we used to be known as the fighting fundamentalists of Lee County, so now I can't get any of you to fight for anything. You're just a bunch of wimps. You wrestle not. And he went on for about 30 minutes just excoriating the people that I kind of slinked out the back and got in my car and drove away, uh, realizing that that was not my crowd of folks I wanted to be associated with. But what is he doing? He's taking the Word of God and he's twisting it. He had an agenda. He found a few words that fit his agenda. And then he thought he could convince people based upon his agenda and twisting of the word that the Bible actually supported what it is that he wanted to say. A faithful gospel minister will refuse to do that kind of thing to God's word. He will not tamper with it. He will not resort to trickery or craftiness. Paul says, but positively, faithful gospel minister will commend himself and his ministry to everyone's conscience he will openly declare the truth that's what he says he's not ashamed of his teaching he's not saying one thing when he counsels people in private and something different whenever he preaches the word in public he's willing for what he says to be examined to be weighed to be evaluated because he says he does this in the sight of God. He, he does this recognizing that his preaching and teaching and handling of God's Word is carried out the way that every moment of every aspect of our lives is carried out, and that is quorum Deo, before the face of God. What a pastor does, what a minister does with the Word, he is doing before God, the God before whom one day he will stand to give an account for how he handled this word this is the same thing that paul says earlier in this letter in chapter 2 verse 17 when he says for we are not like so many peddlers of god's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by god in the sight of god we speak the simple fact is that there are many who have gone out into the world who present themselves as ministers of the gospel and yet who lack the kind of integrity that paul writes about here 
They're deceitful. They don't handle the word of God rightly. And they would not be willing to have their motives and intentions laid bare before God. Scripture repeatedly warns us against such deceptive teachers. It says they're always going to be among us. And that we need to discern and watch out for them and not follow them. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Verse 16, Peter says that some of the things that Paul writes in his letters are hard to understand. I'm glad that verse is in the Bible. Because if Peter had difficulty understanding some things Paul said, I don't feel too bad when I have difficulty understanding some of the things that are written in Scripture. But he says that ignorant and unstable people twist those words to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. And then in verse 17 of 2 Peter 3, he adds this, You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Why do you think this warning is given to us in the Bible? It's because we're prone to be led away. We're prone to be misled by those who erroneously twist the Scriptures, erroneously teach the Scriptures by twisting It's plain meaning. This is the same warning that Paul gives to Timothy when he charges him to preach the word there in the church at Ephesus where he was the pastor. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, that whole chapter down to verse 5 in chapter 4 is filled with good instruction for us as we consider the way the apostle instructs a pastor of how he is to minister and lead God's people. In fact, it's found on page 996 in the copy of the Bible in front of you. I encourage you just to turn over to 2 Timothy 3 for just a moment. We're not going to read all of this, but I do encourage you to read it and to to look through it. Paul describes what's going to happen in the last days, verse 1. And by last days, he doesn't mean the three and a half years or seven years before Jesus returns. He means what's happened from the time Jesus has ascended into heaven to the time that he returns again. Right now, the last days have been lasting about 2,000 years. They will continue to go on until Jesus does return. We know that's the case because in verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, after describing what certain people will be like in the last days, he tells Timothy, turn away from them. Well, if he's only talking about a few years before Jesus returns, there'd be no reason for him to tell Timothy to turn away from him. Timothy would be dead. So he's talking about this period of time after the first coming of Jesus, before the second coming of Jesus. He describes all the sinful kind of things that will happen in seasons of great evil And then in verse 14, he contrasts what is going on in the world and even among some professing Christians. And he says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have been firm and have firmly believed, knowing whom from whom you learned it. And verse 16, he reminds them that it's from his mother and grandmother that from a child, he learned the Holy Scriptures, these scriptures that are able to make a person wise unto salvation then verses 16 and 17 he describes the purpose of scripture the fourfold purpose of scripture have you ever noticed this all scriptures breathed out by god and is profitable for teaching reproof for correction for training and righteousness four purposes of scripture two of them are negative correction rebuking Listen, if you're giving yourself to a gospel ministry, you're sitting under the ministry of the Word of God where you're never corrected, you're never rebuked, 
If you read the Bible in such a way that it only affirms what you think, then you're not reading it rightly. You're not receiving what's really there. Because half of the purpose of God's Word, according to these verses, is to correct us, to set right what's wrong, because we still have sin in our thinking, sin in our lives, our affections, and we're in constant need of being retrained, reordered, reshepherded back on right paths. But then in chapter 4, listen to these sober words that apply to every preacher of the gospel. Listen to this. This is sobering. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. I mean, Paul just stacks up for Timothy. Timothy, one day, you are going to stand before the judge of the living and the dead. And in light of that coming day, preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then verse 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Do you see the importance of being aware of any teacher, no matter what their credentials, no matter how they purport themselves to be, who does not straightforwardly teach the Word of God to you? Your spiritual stability stands at the crossroads. It's at stake. The eternal welfare of your soul is at stake in how the Word of God is ministered to you, how you receive it. Paul was not ashamed to have his teaching openly examined by any honest inquirer because he was not at all interested in manipulating people or tricking people through any kind of deceitful misuse of God's Word. That same spirit will characterize every faithful minister and ministry of the gospel. And it is what God's people must be on the lookout for. It's what we must insist upon and never allow to be diminished in a church. There are many opportunities to be led astray today by a variety of unsound ministries and ministers who purport to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus. Scripture warns us of them, and we neglect such warnings to our own peril. So brothers and sisters, commit yourself to a church that makes much of the Word of God. Commit yourself to a church that believes deeply in the mercy of God. Submit yourself to the ministry of the gospel that is being carried out by men who don't forget that they themselves are children of ministry, who will not lord it over your conscience as if somehow they're on a higher plane because they somehow have gotten right with God in a way other than mercy and grace. And be faithful to insist that that type of ministry continue on in the church where you plant your life. Beware of any ministry that hesitates to teach any and all of the Bible as the very Word of God. 
Well, these are the first two characteristics of a faithful gospel ministry that Paul describes in these first six verses of 2 Corinthians 4. Such a ministry perseveres by the mercy of God. It's committed to integrity and refuses trickery or tampering with God's Word, but openly, unashamedly, declares the truth for anyone and everyone to consider. This is the type of ministry we ought to aspire to in this church. It's what we as a congregation must insist upon and not settle for anything less. Because our spiritual lives depend upon it. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for teaching us from Your Word what we ought to look for, insist upon when we submit ourselves to the ministry of the Gospel. We thank You for those on whose shoulders we stand who have been faithful before us for many years and generations past who have left us examples, testimonies of those who served You faithfully and followed You faithfully and help us to be such people in our day. We pray in Jesus' name.